Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of March 9th, Funding Fracas. I'm your host, Dan Creator, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the significant widening in credit spreads in the past couple of weeks and focus on the funding stress that's been apparent in the past couple of days and when we might see those stresses peak. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, it has been two weeks since our last High Quality Spreads edition here after we did a macro monthly with the full team last week focusing on the Russia-Ukraine situation. And what a two weeks it has been. Yeah, we're now seeing credit spreads really start to just gap wider day over day. They're moving several basis points wider, even on days where risk tone seems fairly more or less constructive. We're at 149 basis points in the ice Bamel index today. But finally, we've got a day where risk tone seems very strong. We're over 1% up in equity markets in the long discussed discovery deal is out with a reported 30 billion set to price today. By the time this episode is released, we will have more details. So I think it'll be interesting to see where this credit spread indices set today. But again, there's a lot of momentum carrying spreads wider. And like you mentioned at the top, the funding stresses that we're starting to see pop up over the past week or so in credit markets are really more of the cause for concern at this point. Yeah. So a couple trends to highlight in the most recent widening episode, I think two major ones. The first one being that we've seen financials underperforming industrials and utilities, obviously. And the second one being an underperformance at the short end of the curve, which gets to the funding stress that you've talked about. And, you know, obviously we all know that banks have been under pressure here with the unknown impact of sanctions on Russia and what that will really mean for the financial system. But rather than dwell on that, I think we can just transition the conversation to focusing on funding stress, because I think you and I agree that it's difficult to see spreads meaningfully or sustainably finding their footing until funding stresses start to die down here. And so I want to dive in to talk about that. And I guess we could start with, at the very beginning, what spawned this funding stress? And I think the obvious answer is that we saw banks kind of rush for funding. I think the generally accepted explanation there is just at times when volatility is very high and we don't know what the impact of sanctions are going to be on the financial system, having a war chest of liquidity there is helpful to make sure that you're going to be able to withstand any market environment going forward. And that all makes sense. But what started as an increase in demand for liquidity purposes, is now transitioned to what's likely more of a self-reinforcing cycle on funding stress and funding costs continuing to increase at the short end of the curve. Yeah, really over the past few days, we've seen FRA OIS move significantly wider. FRA OIS for the March contract is now, as of this recording, around 30 basis points. It was up around 35 yesterday. And just the price of funding for all banks, not just banks that might have some idiosyncratic exposure to Russia, but the cost of funding for all banks has moved higher. And like you said, if that were to persist and funding costs were sustainably at these levels, that would cause some serious problems in 
credit spread markets more generally, not just the front end of the curve. But what we're seeing now with the stresses in the front end and by extension, a flattening of credit spread curves that's really consistent with the typical dynamic during periods of stress. And so I think this is kind of a textbook example of volatility leading to uncertainty with fear gripping financial markets, just leading to elevated funding costs, particularly pronounced at the front end. So let's look at what's actually happening now, because obviously funding stress at a time when there's still a trillion and a half dollars at the RRP seems difficult to square. Like if we have so much liquidity in the financial system, how can there be funding stress? And the answer obviously is that we're seeing significant frictions there, that the money at the RRP is not being sent out the curve for banks to raise what we'd consider in the money markets term funding, six-month, one-year funding, the type of funding that is really helpful for bank ratios, LCR, NSFR type ratios. You know, I think if a bank goes to the market looking for three-month funding right now, I don't think they're going to have any problem. I think it's when you're looking at term funding that we're really seeing the funding stress. And so if that is sort of the aggravating characteristic of the current episode, that money at the very short end of the curve parked overnight at, if you want to say at the Fed's balance sheet or at RRP, that's not being termed out. What is the solution for that problem? Well, I think the obvious solution there is there will be a price at which investors at the RRP are willing to term out their assets and, and invest in financial paper for longer term. So the question is, what is that level? Where is the fair value of LIBOR? And at what point does LIBOR stop rising and we start to see some stability? I think that's less clear. Yeah, it's certainly an impossible question to answer. And so I think to try and figure it out, we have no choice but to lean more on historical precedent. And that's why we went back and looked at since the financial crisis, all the episodes in which LIBOR OIS spreads have been at current levels or higher. And we count seven such episodes, excluding the current environment, since the financial crisis. And I think looking at these can be extremely helpful, but also it can paint a bit of a troubling picture when trying to gauge when the current round of funding stress will end. So I want to dive into that real quick, Dan, and talk about the results of that study real quick. So like I said, seven episodes of funding stress at or higher than current levels. And we broke that down into two categories. The first category were funding stresses that we characterize as being brought about by some change in market structure or regulation. So we found three of those. The main example of that was, of course, money market reform in 2016, when we saw a massive move out of prime funds and into government-only funds. That regulation caused severe LIBOR stress, but it was obviously a result of the change in market structure. It wasn't necessarily credit-driven like today's probably is. The second environment of funding stress that we attributed to a change in market structure was early 2018. Now, this one, there were a lot of moving parts in early 2018, but we saw a significant increase in FRA OIS coinciding with President Trump's tax reform bill that allowed for the repatriation of overseas investment portfolios. And those portfolios were major investors in unsecured short-term funding. So when those portfolios were wound down and ultimately repatriated back into the U.S., unsecured borrowers lost a significant investor in their paper. So there was a big change in the market structure there. We had to find a new buyer for OAS widened out. Now, we'll talk a bit more about this early 2018 environment a bit later, but we are primarily chalking that one up to a change in market mechanics. And the third one very quickly was in Q3 of 2019, when reserves got to the point of scarcity in the financial system, we saw the SOFR spike, so-called. The Fed came with extraordinary liquidity operations. Again, we're attributing this increase in financial stress to a change in mostly market structure. It wasn't necessarily credit fears that drove funding stress. Now, the other four episodes of funding stress in the past decade plus 
we attributed to more credit concerns. And I think the concerning part for the current environment is if we look at those episodes, we had the central bank ride to the rescue in all four of them. So the first two in that series, I think, are pretty related. There were the European debt scares, the European debt crisis of 2011, 2012. And then there was some volatility brought about from European credit concerns in 2010. Both of those were during the Fed's quantitative easing periods and coincided with the Fed adding more accommodation to the system that relieved some of these funding stresses. And then late 2018, as fears of earnings recession increased and the Fed was towards the end of its tightening cycle, we saw the Fed eventually give back three of its rate hikes with those so-called insurance cuts. And then it eventually started to regrow its portfolio after, like you mentioned, reserves became scarce. Finally, the fourth and most significant, most recent was COVID as the Fed unleashed some extraordinary monetary policy measures, including buying corporate debt and beginning quantitative easing at unprecedented volumes. Yeah. And so I want to go back just really quickly to the end of 2018 environment you mentioned with the earnings recession fears. Yes, the Fed ultimately gave back their hikes and started growing the balance sheet again. But in December of 2018, that's when we saw for OIS peak. That was also the month that the Fed stopped hiking. So there was a period of stability between the end of hiking and cutting, but they stopped hiking in December and they announced the end of balance sheet normalization. So in that one month, we saw FRAOAS peak alongside significant Fed intervention. So really, if you look at those four episodes, the Fed came in and significantly altered the financial landscape. QE increases, obviously, in 2011, 2012, the end of balance sheet normalization and the end of rate hikes in 2018, and then obviously what they did in 2020. Clearly, where we're going with this is that's not happening this time around. The Fed is not going to ride to the rescue. We know, in fact, they're going to be embarking on rate hikes beginning next week with the first 25 basis point rate hike and looking at beginning balance sheet normalization in the next couple of months. So rather than riding to the rescue, the Fed is going to be going the opposite direction. And so from a high level, that implies to me that funding stress can potentially continue. Yeah, I think it's somewhat fitting that we're recording this podcast on the final day of quantitative easing. And like you said, three rate hikes in March, May, and June, pretty much a done deal baked into the cake and balance sheet normalization set to begin in July. So the Fed is kind of off the table as a catalyst for some of these funding stresses to reverse. So obviously that's a bit of a troubling risk factor, but it doesn't necessarily mean that funding stresses are just going to continue increasing into perpetuity here. There is the other side of the coin where funding stresses could very quickly go the other direction. What I'd like to do here is maybe ask which of the funding episodes that we've talked about in the past 10 years, which one do you think most closely resembles the current? I think the early 2010s ones that we talked about related to fears around European sovereign debt are probably the most applicable comparisons to today. We had fears generally stemming from abroad that led to significant market volatility. And I think that's what we're seeing in the current environment. Of course, most recently today, like you mentioned, you know, we see some of this risk on tone. It could be the beginning of the market seeing some light at the end of the tunnel with respect to this volatility that's been brought on by geopolitical tensions. And if that's what the market market is pricing to, that should be viewed as a positive development for these funding stresses. Although time will tell, we're certainly still in the midst of a lot of stresses here. Yeah, where I was going with that question is, I think it is up to debate. If we do this exercise again three years from now, will we look back on 2022 as a quote-unquote credit-driven funding stress, or will we look at it as a market structure-driven funding stress? Because I think you can make a compelling argument for either one of them. I think you just very effectively laid out the argument that it's a credit-driven funding stress. And of course, this is not mutually exclusive. It's probably both are playing into it. But 
You made the case for it being credit-driven. I'll make the case for it being market structure-driven. That really goes back to just the friction we're seeing between reserves trapped at the short end that's not being extended. And that's why I want to draw the attention back to the early 2018 episode, because there, when unsecured borrowers lost a key lender in the form of those overseas portfolios that went away, there was a period of stress during which those borrowers had to adapt and change their funding plans to adapt to the new world order going forward. And so in that time frame, we saw for OAS staying very wide. And then what eventually happened was we got to the middle point of the year. We started to see some relief as just funding needs, actual funding accomplished, really declined significantly. We saw those borrowers term their debt out a little bit. We found some new lenders at the short end of the curve to get unsecured funding done. And the funding complex just sort of eventually figured itself out. Now, I will say there were some other factors going on in 2018. We had a debt ceiling situation there where we saw pretty big swings in Treasury's issuance patterns, them issuing short end, cash balance gyrations around the debt ceiling. And that definitely contributed to it eventually when the debt ceiling was resolved in early 2018 and we got a bit more reserves into the system. So it's not apples Apple certainly not. But what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that we saw funding stresses driven primarily by market structure. And then after a period of stress, borrowers adapted and borrowing needs went down and the situation just sort of blew over or faded, whatever you want to call it. I think there is a path to that now. If borrowers now recognize that getting term funding is more difficult, maybe we see more debt issuance further out the curve in bond markets, or you alluded to it, just some of the concerns from front-end investors starting to fade a little bit, hopefully with some degree of improvement on the Russia situation. Obviously, peace talks again in the headlines today, take that for what you will. These factors can sort of combine to make funding stress just sort of fade on its own. And obviously today for OIS is in, as we record, four and a half to five basis points today. Clearly, that doesn't mean the funding stress situation is over, but these things can come and go very quickly. And and I think there is a path to stresses just sort of fading in the weeks ahead as both borrowers and lenders adjust to sort of a quote unquote new normal. Yeah, I think that's probably the only way for this to subside. Gradually, it's just going to get a little bit better. Volatility is going to fade and funding markets are going to calm down. I think, like we've said, the Fed is not going to come to the rescue, barring maybe some regulatory changes that were already in progress could help to pacify some of these funding markets. But otherwise, it's probably just going to be the normalization of volatility, which brings down funding costs, and then that is going to lead to less volatility, and it's going to probably have to solve itself on its own. Yeah, I mean... That happens in one of two ways. Either we have a quick resolution to the Russia situation with either Russia just no longer pursuing aggressions or some type of peace talk, or more likely the second one is there becomes a general acceptance that this is priced into markets at this point, that the risk of sanctions in the financial system, et cetera, et cetera, that that's just been priced. And there's an argument to be made that today might be the first step towards that, towards a general acceptance of the fact that We've now sufficiently priced the geopolitical stress that that risk premia has been added in, and now market participants can begin to adapt to this new normal. It remains to be seen if that's the case. We will find out. But I think it is rather possible that when we sit down for our podcast next week, funding stresses will be significantly alleviated. But I do want to go back to something you just said, Dan. You talked about the potential for regulation to help out here. What did you mean when you said that? Well, you might remember about a year ago, there was a lot of discussion around the Fed's supplementary leverage ratio and the exemption that it ultimately allowed to expire. So during COVID, the Fed allowed banks to exempt treasuries and reserves from their SLRs. 
which made the regulatory ratio slightly less punitive for holding cash and holding treasuries. The Fed allowed that to expire at the end of March of last year, but Chair Powell has alluded many times to the potential for a more permanent tweak to the rule and a nod to the fact that we're in a different environment with abundant liquidity, large treasury balances, and it might not be, quote unquote, fair for banks to have to count the reserves that the Fed has pumped into the system, the treasuries that the government has issued to negatively impact their ratios. Yeah, and what you didn't say is that would obviously decrease the funding stress we have right now because we know that banks, there was this initial rush to get funding in order to shore up liquidity ahead of market volatility and uncertainty. But then you have banks just carrying out their typical funding plans where they're issuing XX billion per month in various tenors in order to maintain their regulatory ratios, LCR, NSFR, what have you. So if you have some relief on the regulatory front from an SLR exemption for key assets that banks hold, treasuries and reserves, then the regulatory onus isn't so strong. So you wouldn't necessarily see banks need to be coming to fund right now, even if markets are stressed, because they need to maintain the regulatory ratios. And it's an important point, too, because obviously the SLR was big headlines a year or so ago. It continued to decrease in market relevance. Until now, nobody's really talking about it. But it's key for me because it demonstrates utility for the SLR exemption, even at times when reserves maybe not necessarily be extremely abundant, or even while they are abundant, that it serves help funding conditions. It will maybe short circuit funding stresses a little bit. So there is help there, not just helping banks, because obviously a key criticism of the SLR exemption is that, at least from certain members of Congress, is that it was viewed as somewhat of a quote unquote bank bailout. It never was that, but now you can actually point to something and say like, this can help improve the functioning of financial markets and make sure that funding stresses are potentially less likely to happen in the future. So I do think this might bring some renewed attention onto SLR and that will ultimately be delivered. And we've been sort of targeting when we have a new permanent vice chair for supervision installed at the Fed for when that could happen. And there's been some gyrations with that. It's still not necessarily clear when we're going to have a vice chair of supervision, but still this highlights the likelihood that we will have an SLR exemption at some point in the future. So maybe Dan, we can wrap up and put a bow on the funding stress conversation here. We've talked about a lot, obviously, with funding stress, what's driving it now, historical episodes that are similar. Just give me your quick expectation for the path of funding stress in the near term. What do you think is going to happen? So my base case is that things are going to gradually get better. I think we could see funding costs remain at these levels for the medium term, but I don't expect them to get significantly worse. I would expect LIBOR OIS in the context of 30-ish basis points for the foreseeable future, generally trending downward in the medium term. Yeah, I think I'm with you there. I mean, at the risk of being wrong on things should generally start to get better as the rush situation fades. I do think the funding stress should get better. I mean, after all, it's probably appropriate, given the market backdrop, that frow IS spreads are significantly wider. Like, you're not going to have a huge increase in volatility, credit and counterparty risk, credits are blowing out, and for funding conditions to remain completely sanguine. Like, we're going to see frow IS widen, but there isn't like a structural shortage of dollars out there that makes me think that it's not going to be resolved. We have frictions and the marketplace needs to adapt, but I think they will. The one thing that gives me pause is that what we talked about earlier in the beginning of the podcast, we're not going to have the Fed riding to the rescue. And we really haven't seen a credit-driven funding stress play out without the Fed riding to the rescue since the financial crisis. So I definitely think there's risk that the funding stress could continue, even get worse from here, for sure. But it's not my base case. But I do think we have to be 
aware of that. So when it comes to broadening the conversation now toward the broader view on credit spreads, you know, we started the podcast by saying that if we think funding trust will start to peak, then we should see spreads start to stabilize. That's been our view for the past couple of weeks. We had a target of 125 to 130. As the rush situation deteriorated, we knew that spreads would move meaningfully past those targets, just as geopolitical risk premium was priced into the market, but that we expected once that premium was priced, that a range would be established and would ultimately hold between 120, 125 basis points to the upper end. Now, we expected that to be in the 145 to 150 basis point range. We are about there now. So maybe we were a little too conservative there, but we should start to see some stability. That said, the risk is decidedly in spreads continuing to widen and funding stresses remaining elevated and potentially worsening. So even if we're looking to put money to work here in spreads, I think maintaining defensiveness and up in credit quality trades remains paramount. Yeah. And then I think just to bottom line the conversation, once we start to see real stability in funding markets, I think that's probably when it's an opportune time to start looking at long positions and credit spreads, which could start to benefit from being at the top of the range, like you mentioned. I'm in broad agreement. I think monitoring funding stress, that's going to be the canary in the coal mine here. And when you do start to see stability there, arguably today maybe is the first day towards that, fingers crossed, building some tactical overweights, particularly in high-grade credits, the double A's, things of that nature, will make sense because we expect the range to hold for a few months. And now, obviously, the long-term view for credit also may be that the next leg is another leg wider, but I don't think we'll get there in the next couple of weeks or months. And that's probably a conversation for a different podcast. So just want to say a quick thanks to all of our listeners. We will be back next week on Wednesday, right after the Fed's very important March meeting. After the press conference, we'll be here to unpack the Fed's beginning of its liftoff campaign and what the tone of the conversation and the press conference means for credit spreads next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. 
This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 